everyone, and welcome to the Striving in Emergency Medicine podcast. My name is Chandler Davis. I'm a fourth-year medical student that's pursuing emergency medicine as a specialty. And in this episode, I really want to talk about COVID-19 treatments, particularly in the outpatient setting. I know this doesn't directly apply to the emergency department, but I feel as though this is a really important topic. And in particular, I feel like most providers, regardless of the specialty, should be aware of the new and and, uh, important treatments that have come out, particularly recently. This is a really interesting time right now because the vaccines have been out for quite some time and they're incredibly effective at preventing severity and hospitalization and death. But we're realizing with a new variant, particularly Omicron, that you know this is a, a, a virus and a pandemic that is going to be endemic and almost everyone is going to get it. Um, so that's unfortunately just a reality. I think a lot of scientists have come around to realize. And with that, you know, I think treatments are going to be incredibly important um, along with future vaccines. But I think treatments are going to be preventing, you know, some of these even more severe outcomes and p- perhaps even reducing uh, symptomatic illness. So and there's going to be more, I'm sure, that are going to come out later uh, on in the future. But we have a good few out right now that are proven to be quite effective. I just don't think there's a, a lot of discussion around it in the medical community. Community, and I think there needs to be more. So um, even as a student, I'm kind of seeing this. So I, I'd love to be able to chat about it today. And hopefully y'all learn something about it. And again, if you have any questions or concerns, or even want to open up a dialogue, I'm, I'm all ears. This is a really exciting topic. So we're going to go over five different medications for the treatment of outpatient COVID. So the first medication is going to be Paxlovid. This is also known as the Pfizer pill. Uh, This is one of two antiviral pills that came out at the end of 2021, and it got a lot of press coverage, um, as it should have. And we'll dive into, again, all of the data regarding uh, efficacy and really the things that are important with regards to each of these medications. The second medication to consider that we're going to talk about today is molnupiravir. This is also known as the Merck pill. This is the second of the two antiviral pills that came out in 2021. The third medication we're going to go over is one of the monoclonal antibodies called citrovimab. The last two medications are going to be off-label use. So the the first one is going to be fluvoxamine, and then the second one is going to be remdesivir. So let's dive right into it. So Paxlovid is going to be the first one we're going to talk about. Paxlovid is a protease inhibitor, so that's its mechanism of action again, also known as the Pfizer pill. Um, Paxlovid is the brand name. The generic name is Nermaltrevir, um, and this also includes ritonavir. So ritonavir, again, uh, a lot of us are familiar with this because of HIV medications, includes ritonavir. It's used for the similar... for a similar purpose in this case, it is used to increase the half-life and the um, ability to reach therapeutic levels of nermaltrevir. Ritonavir is going to inhibit the CYP3A uh, enzyme, and that's going to allow that therapeutic level to increase for the nermaltrevir. Important things to consider is that the CYP enzyme, again, we learn a lot about this in medical school, is that this is going to interact with a lot of other drugs. So something very, very important to consider is there's a long, long list of drug-to-drug interactions with this medication. Diving right into the FDA fact sheet. So this was granted emergency use authorization, um, and this was based on analysis of the EPIC-HR uh, randomized control trial. This was in phase two and three study of this medication. This was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study, and it was mainly looking at outpatient treatment of patients that had tested positive for COVID. 
these patients had to at least be 18 years of age. Um, many were older, and they had to at least have one risk factor that deemed them qualified to have risk for progression to severe disease. So this included BMI of over 25, asthma, hypertension, being over 60 years of age, etc. There's a long list of these. I, I encourage you to look at them for yourself just to be aware of what was included. These patients um, were treated within five days of symptom onset. The primary endpoint for this study was the proportion of subjects with COVID-19 related hospitalization or death, and this had to be through day 28. Ultimately, there was a significant relative risk reduction in hospitalization or death at 88%. It's important to note that there were no deaths in the treatment group and about 12 in the placebo group. This is really big data. Uh, this is comparable to what the vaccines were boasting at the beginning of their release of data and their clinical trials. This is going to be really exciting to see how this medication plays out in the long run. It is important to note, though, that there was no data available regarding the activity level of this medication against the Omicron variant in the cell culture setting. However, they did do studies looking at the bio, uh, a biochemical assay looking at substitutions found in the Omicron variant and looking at levels of activity of this drug, and they didn't see any significant reduction in uh, the Paxlovid activity level, which is exciting. That's why they're showing a lot of possibility in the Omicron wave. This data related to the Omicron variant is preliminary, and it's going to likely change over the next few months. So it'll be exciting to see the efficacy level in future studies as well. So it's something to pay attention to. The last thing I'll say about this drug is that at the end of last year in December, the FDA granted its emergency use authorization, not just for adult patients, but also pediatric patients with mild to moderate COVID. They had to be patients that were at high risk for progression to severe disease, um, and they had to be at least 12 years of age or older. There are certain weight limits and requirements as well, but I won't go into that. The next medication we're going to talk about is molnupiravir. This is also known as the Merck pill. The mechanism of action for this medication is slightly different than the Pfizer pill. Um, this is a prodrug, and it's ultimately metabolized to a nucleoside analog. This ultimately leads to accumulation of errors in the viral genome, which leads to its inhibition of replication. There have been theoretical concerns for uh, the possibility of developing new variants because it's promoting um, errors and, and changes to its genome. The FDA is aware of this concern and has addressed it. Uh, they ultimately concluded that there's low risk for developing of new variants based on this drug. They are requiring Merck to develop uh, genomic databases to evaluate for new viral variants in response to this. Molnupiravir was ultimately given its emergency use authorization from the data that came out in the MoveOut trial. This was a trial that was released in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was a phase three trial that included about 1,400 patients. It was a randomized control trial. And again, similar to the Pfizer pill and the data that came out from that, this was a study that was focusing on non-hospitalized patients with mild to moderate COVID who were at risk for progression to severe disease. These were patients that were 18 years of age or older, and they had to have risk factors such as 60 years of age, diabetes, smoking, things like that. Similar to the Paxlovid study, these patients had not been vaccinated prior to the enrollment of this study. 
the primary endpoint they were looking at was the percentage of subjects who were either hospitalized or passed away up to day 29, and this was due to any cause. Ultimately, there was a significant relative risk reduction of about 30% from the molnupiravir treatment group to the placebo group. This is definitely lower than the Paxlovid study that came out. Diving a little deeper into the data, there was one death in the treatment group. This came out to about 0.1% of the patients in the treatment group, and then there were nine deaths in the placebo group, about 1.3%. The difference in the relative risk reduction in the molnupiravir study versus the Paxlovid study really shows the difference between these two medications. This is why the FDA issued this emergency use authorization for this drug only if other authorized therapeutic options were not accessible or clinically appropriate. So in this case, the Pfizer medication, Paxlovid, having the limitation due to the severe drug-to-drug interactions, but the efficacy is significantly greater. Um, Molnupiravir, on the other hand, doesn't have those drug-to-drug interactions, but the efficacy is much lower. Another thing to consider for this medication is that uh, the emergency use authorization doesn't include the ability to provide this medication for patients under the age of 18, unlike the Pfizer medication. It'll be interesting to see the data that comes out with regards to the activity level of this medication with regards to the Omicron variant. I don't believe that there's much data out there uh, really addressing this issue if there will be resistance. So it'll be something to be on the lookout for. It'll also be interesting to see whether there will be any significant ramifications of the changes to the genome of the virus due to this medication. Again, like I said, the FDA has addressed it, but I think things are really early on, so it'll be hard to tell what things might pan out to be in, let's say, months or even years. So the third medication I want to go over today is citrovimab. This is an anti-spike monoclonal antibody. The reason I'm going over this medication and monoclonal antibody versus others, because there are many others, is that this is one of the few that has shown remained activity and efficacy against Omicron. It is important to note that this was preliminary and non-peer-reviewed data that was released. Again, I'll link it in the description below. So the recommendations with regards to providing monoclonal antibodies currently, now that Omicron is the predominant variant, um, they have limited only to the use of citrovimab as opposed to many of the others. A little bit more about it is it's authorized for the use within 10 days of symptom onset, and as opposed to the Paxlovid medication and the Monopiravir medication, this is not an oral medication. This is a single-dose IV infusion. This definitely poses as a challenge being that it's not an oral medication and you have to set it up at an infusion center. So it's not going to be as easy as some of the other medications. Citrovimab was granted its emergency use authorization based on the data that came out from the Comet ICE trial. This is actually an ongoing randomized control trial. Um, Again, looking at citrovimab in comparison to placebo, uh, it was double-blinded and it's looking at mild to moderate COVID patients. Patients that were eligible for this study were only 18 years of age and older, no patients under that. They also had to have at least one risk factor for risk of developing severe illness. Again, a lot of similar overlaps to the previous studies we went over. So some of those comorbidities were diabetes, obesity, etc. Something to be aware of with regards to this study is that they excluded severely immunocompromised patients from this study. I'm not aware if that's what they did for the others. It sounded like that wasn't the case for the other two studies. 
there were a total of just over a thousand patients that were randomized and um, enrolled in this study with about 500 something patients in the treatment and 500 something in the placebo. They were given a one hour long transfusion of either citrovimab or placebo. The primary outcome that they were looking at for this study was all-cause hospitalization uh, greater than or equal to 24 hours of acute care or death um, up to day 29. Ultimately, there was a 79% relative risk reduction from the treatment group primary outcome to the uh, placebo group. There were zero deaths in the treatment group and only two deaths in the placebo group. But this is showing a lot of great efficacy, similar to the Paxlovid medication and also some of the vaccines. It'll be interesting to see how this medication pans out with regards to future variants being how targeted monoclonal antibodies are. And it'll be interesting to see as more data comes out with Omicron. Um, again, a lot of that uh, initial data was very preliminary, but it did show a lot of promise. So that's why they're recommending this medication. So the next medication I want to go over is fluvoxamine. This is an interesting medication, and I don't think there's a lot of talk about it for multiple reasons. So I want to get into some of the data and really the, you know, the argument for taking it and what is out there right now. So a little background, fluvoxamine is an SSRI, so it's been used for mental health disorders, uh, depression, anxiety, things like that. It's also an, an S1R agonist. The mechanism of action with regards to the treatment of COVID is postulated, and it's really not entirely sure why. There's thoughts that it might have some anti-inflammatory uh, effects, some antiviral effects as well, but it's really not well understood. The reason this was studied in the setting of COVID was that I, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe that there was um, correlation in some European countries. I think it was France. They found that a lot of the patients that had... Um, been prescribed SSRIs in the setting of the hospital with regards to COVID had better outcomes compared to those that were not prescribed SSRIs. Again, that's just correlative data, doesn't mean causation. So I think some trials have started to dive in to figure out if there is any causation there. So so one of the benefits of this drug is that the safety profile is very well known. I mean, it's been out for quite some time, so it's fairly well documented. There are some drug interactions to be aware of for this medication because it interacts with the CYP450 family. Diving into the literature, though, the first trial I want to go over is called the Stop COVID trial. This was a small randomized control trial. It had only about 80 patients in each treatment arm, so a quite, quite a small study. 0% of the patients in the fluvoxamine group had clinical deterioration within 15 days of the study, so that was kind of the treatment um, study time. The what they defined as clinic, clinical deterioration was either shortness of breath or hospitalization for shortness of breath, pneumonia, oxygen stats less than 92% on room air, or need for oxygen um, to achieve oxygen stats 92% or greater. So again, the downsides are that this is a small trial, and apparently there were some issues with follow-up for these patients based on surveys and such. So again, this is a study that kind of gets us excited about fluvoxamine, but doesn't necessarily give us enough information to um, start providing this medication. If anything, it just needs to be studied more. So the next study was the Stop COVID 2 trial. So this is in follow-up. Unfortunately, this actually was stopped due to low incidence of poor outcomes in both the treatment and the control groups. So it wasn't really representative of the common population, and it just was not a well-designed study, I think, to be able to look at this medication. So it was stopped before even anything was published. 
Um, the last trial, which was really the big pivotal trial for this medication, was called the TOGETHER trial. This was in published in The Lancet. So this was a much larger randomized double-blinded control trial. It had about 740 patients that were allocated and randomized to the fluvoxamine group and about 750 or so to the placebo group. The interesting thing, though, about this trial, and I've kind of scratched my head about it for a little bit, is the primary endpoints that they defined. They're quite bizarre. They're not as simple as just hospitalization. So the primary endpoint was a composite between retention of a patient in the emergency setting for more than six hours or transfer to a tertiary hospital due to COVID-19. So again, I don't know if that necessarily means clinical significance. Um, there was no difference between the treatment group and the placebo group with regards to hospitalization, but there was a significant difference in that their, pri their defined primary outcome, which was, again, patients observed in the emergency setting for more than six hours or transferred to a tertiary hospital because of COVID. So it was lower in the fluvoxamine group, but that's not really the data that I'm that excited about with regards to this study. So digging deeper into some of the data, this is where it gets a little interesting. So they did diver two different analyses one based on intention to treat, so patients that were randomized and were supposed to be taking medications, maybe they skipped a few, it's hard to say, but those were patients in the intention to treat group, and then there was the per protocol basis group. So these were patients that actually took each medication as prescribed like they were supposed to. So in the intention to treat groups, there was no significant difference in mortality. However, in the per protocol basis, those groups, so the patients that were taking the medication as prescribed like they were supposed to, there was actually a 91% reduction in mortality in the treatment group versus the placebo group. This is a major, major finding. So um, to provide extra numbers, there was, I believe, one patient in the treatment group for fluvoxamine that um, died, and then there was 12 in the placebo group that died. This is a big difference, particularly because this has a larger uh, sample size, quite a bit larger. Based on these three trials and the data provided, the NIH actually has not uh, recommended the use for or against fluvoxamine in the setting of COVID. They have their own arguments and they state that there's insufficient data. I will link that page down in the description below. I encourage you to read it and kind of think for yourself what you think of this data and what they, you think of their recommendations. Again, important things to consider with fluvoxamine is that there's, it's an easy medication to access, particularly because these new medications I had talked about before, um, Paxlovid and Molnupiravir and Citrovimab, the access of these medications is going to be quite a bit more challenging because they just came out and maybe the infrastructure isn't there to be able to provide it to everyone. So this might provide a beneficial and interesting option for those that might not have ease of access to some of these other medications. The last medication I want to go over today is remdesivir. Some of you all might be familiar with this medication because it has only been currently FDA approved for patients in the hospital with regards to COVID. So it's a commonly used medication in um, inpatient treatment. There has been new data that's come out recently in the New England Journal of Medicine. I'll go over, in a, go over it in a minute, but um, they're starting to now recommend it as off-label use for the treatment in outpatient. So the mechanism of action for remdesivir, it's an RNA polymerase inhibitor. So that's really how it's targeting the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The data that was released in the New England Journal of Medicine, it was the pine tree trial. So this was a randomized control study looking at 560-something patients. Um, 
randomized again to treatment versus placebo. And they had to at least receive uh, one dose of remdesivir or placebo to be included in all the analyses. The protocol for this was they were given IV remdesivir or placebo for three consecutive days. So it's three separate doses. Important to note, this is IV medication. It's not a PO medication. Something unique with regards to this trial is that it was it was including patients that were 12 years or older as opposed to just 18 years or older. And then they had to have at least one risk factor that qualified them for progression to severe disease. And they all had to be unvaccinated, similar to the other trials that we went over. Getting into the results of this trial, the group that was given IV remdesivir had an 87% lower risk of hospitalization or death compared to placebo. So this is another pretty profound finding with regards to this study. Again, a lot of these drugs kind of have similar efficacy for the most part, maybe except for molnupiravir. Um, Obviously, there are certain caveats with each medication, um, but I suspect that we'll see remdesivir being provided in the outpatient setting quite a bit more often. Again, the only problem is just the fact that it's administered via IV, so it's not as easy as some of the PO medication. One of the positives with regards to remdesivir is that it is going to be easily accessible, at least compared to molnupiravir and Paxlovid, mainly because this has been used for quite some time at this point. And again, because it's been used for a little bit more time, the safety profile of this drug has been a little bit better studied. There is some risk of hepatotoxicity in certain cases, um, but overall, it's a fairly well-known medication. So to recap on all the medications that I went over today, the first one was Paxlovid. This was the Pfizer pill, one of the antiviral medications that came out at the end of 2021. The second one was Molnupiravir. This was the Merck pill. This is the second antiviral pill that came out in the end of 2021. These have recently hit quite a bit of press release and headway with the start of this year. It'll be exciting to see how these pan out over the next uh, couple months and years. The third medication was citrovimab. This is one of the few monoclonal antibodies that's showing effectiveness against the Omicron variant. The fourth medication was fluvoxamine. This was the SSRI antidepressant that has off-label use for COVID. This is a very safe medication. The data is a bit up in the air with regards to effectiveness. The TOGETHER trial was a really pivotal trial that came out that was showing use with regards to reduction in mortality. Again, the NIH hasn't recommended use for or against it, but it'd be interesting for y'all to look through the data and figure out for yourself what you think. And then the last medication was remdesivir. This was the medication that's been out for quite some time with inpatient treatment of COVID. There's now data showing that it's effective in outpatient treatment. Something to consider with regards to the information that I went over today is that this is up to date only to January 30th. Um, Any information that comes out from here on is going to be new and all of this is subject to change, particularly with new variants coming out and, you know, depending on how Omicron responds to some of these medications. I encourage you to read and to continue to learn about new and upcoming treatments and therapeutics. Stay tuned to this podcast for future episodes going over COVID and anything in the emergency department. I'm really excited to see where this podcast goes, and I hope you will leave a rating and review. The information in this podcast and other material related to this podcast are for informational purposes only. No material in this podcast is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of a physician or qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment.